On today's Intrigue Out Loud, the Kootenai, Putini, Mutiny. It was a wild 24 hours in Russia over the weekend. In fact, some of the wildest geopolitical scenes any of us had witnessed in years. What happened? How did it end? And what happens next? Here to answer those questions and more are Intrigue co-founder John Fowler and Intrigue editor-in-chief Jeremy Dicker for a late-breaking emergency podcast. That's up next. Jeremy, how are you? Good, mate. Uh, living the dream here in Sunrise Beach, uh, Queensland. And where are you? I'm currently uh, in Ireland uh, for my sins, which is is uh, an absolutely delightful place to be. But listeners will maybe be a little bit shocked and, and no doubt saddened to not hear Ethan's uh, baritone, rich baritone voice. <laughs> um, and that's because we're going to record a little bit of a different podcast today. It's going to be... Um, JD, our, our managing editor, Jeremy Dicker over there in Australia and myself here in, in, uh, in Ireland. And we're going to have a bit of a breakdown of what we saw over the weekend, the craziness of the, of the almost coup mutiny. We'll get to that, but whatever happened in Russia over the weekend. So we're doing a sort of an emergency podcast here. Um, and we've got no one better than Jeremy because he's been following this stuff uh, very, very closely. Um, but why don't I start by just giving for anybody who kind of was lucky enough to go to the beach and not pay attention to the news, uh, a little bit of a recap of what happened. Um, so late on Friday night, which is important, uh, an, an important detail, we'll come to that. But late on Friday night, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the leader of the uh, paramilitary slash private military contractor group, the Wagner Group. He launched a pseudo coup um, in Russia. He told his soldiers to uh, head and head to Rostov, a city in the south, which is uh, very close to the Ukrainian border. Um, they controlled the military headquarters there and then they marched on Moscow. You know, <laughs> we can't be sure what it was, but it was certainly a challenge to President Vladimir Putin's authority. Um, this took place over about 24 hours and ended uh, yesterday on Saturday um, with him standing down uh, and heading back to the front lines or his, or the, the Wagner group heading back to the front lines in Ukraine and and Prigozhin himself heading off to Belarus. Uh, so that that's the kind of background of what we're going to talk about. But I feel like I want to start here, Jeremy, with just kind of like throwing to you. You've been internally in intrigue, I would say, the sort of most um, – vociferous uh, proponent of the idea that Vladimir Putin's regime is on its last legs and that he probably yeah. or that he might not last all that much longer. So how do we get here? What, what's, what's, the, what's the context? Yeah. Um, heck, heck of a weekend, John. So really, uh, <laughs> maybe, I mean, maybe we can um, hit rewind slightly. Um, those folks who've been reading our newsletter for the last few months, um, you know, we've been, we've been speculating and, and, assessing that there was an growing likelihood that something crazy might happen. Um, a quick recap, our newsletter on the 20th of March, this was just after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Putin. Um, we said that you know nobody expects Putin behind bars anytime soon, um, but nobody expected to see former Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic there either. And then there was a popular uprising that toppled his regime and he was in a Dutch jail a few months later. What we're saying is history is full of plot twists. So we've definitely seen um, a, a plot twist here. Um, a couple of weeks later, the 4th of April, that's when I first said in our internal company Slack that um, I think Putin will be dead by Christmas. Um, and then late May in a private briefing, um, we 
um, you know, we we wrote that this disastrous invasion has raised the pressure on Putin domestically, um, and that we think there's a small chance of regime change in Moscow in the near to medium term. Um, and then in early June, I reiterated, I think he'll be dead by Christmas. Um, I think really, though, um, things escalated on the 10th of June. That's when Russia's Ministry of Defense exactly. issued a decree. Um, that ba basically, um, Russia's defense ministry was saying, or it didn't mention Wagner, the private military, um, company, but it said all, um, mercenary groups would have to sign contracts with the Russian defense ministry. Basically it was a way of, um, you know, forcing Wagner to come in, um, under the umbrella more of the Russian defense ministry, um, integrate with Russia's military. Basically, it was sort of, um, you know, defanging Wagner and Prigozhin, um, its, it head, its head honcho specifically. Um, and we wrote on the 13th of June in a newsletter, uh, a story about that. And we said these two factions, Wagner and the Russian Defense Ministry, they've managed to step back from the brink a few times so far. But as NATO equipped Ukrainian brigades start probing Russian lines, this hostile union will be tested like never before. And here we are. So, um how did we get here? I mean, maybe, I guess the big picture question you were asking, um, what was on my mind when I was thinking through, um, you know, why I think Putin is going to be dead by Christmas. He, he has always had a feral genius for power, right? Um, how to identify it, how to access it, how to leverage it, how to preserve That's it. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was this obscure bureaucrat at, at the city level, um, you know, St. Petersburg government, just an absolute nobody. He went from there to president of the Russian Federation in a few years, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, I think the, the, the specific way he put that genius to work, um, you know, in the last couple of decades as Russia's head, he managed to align the interests of all the key bases of power, like the, the security apparatus, the oligarchs and organized crime in a way that each of them felt like their interests were best served with Putin remaining in power. Right. Um, and, and that, that sort of worked. Um, um, the, the security apparatus maintain their access to, to power and to, to wealth through Putin's largesse. Um, oligarchs were able to, um, you know, control vast amounts of Russia's, um, wealth, um, and, you know, roam the world, living the good life. Organized crime, likewise, had pretty cozy relationships with the security apparatus and with oligarchs. It was a cozy arrangement and they were all individually best served by Putin remaining in power. But when he invaded Ukraine, um, he, he just blew all that apart. Um, particularly when, when, when it started to go wrong, you know, 72 hours in, um, it, it became really apparent how wrong everything was. And things started to switch um, each of those bases of power. Um, it became clear that potentially their best interests would increasingly be served by Putin no longer being in power. So oligarchs, when they started getting sanctioned everywhere, um, being turned into international pariahs, their mega yachts being, you know, seized in the Fiji Islands or whatever, um, you can see how each of those oligarchs would be best served by potentially by Putin being removed from power security services. They were starting to throw each other under the bus, being blamed and, 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 and casting blame for how poorly the invasion had gone. And so likewise, um, you can see how increasingly, um, factions within the security services, and that includes Wagner and the, um, you know, Kadyrov, um, and others, how they would increasingly um, be best served by Putin being removed from power. And then likewise, organized crime. Um, they, they were losing their, their safe havens, um, um, you know, spots to stash their cash. Places like London that maybe turned a blind eye to um, shady you know, Russian figures owning amazing houses on Mayfair or whatever. So one by one, each of these bases of power, it became clear um, 
that they were no longer so wedded to Putin's continued, um, you know, um, hold on power. And so, honestly, I've started to see more and more each of those bases of power there, that the one thing they're going to be sharing in common more and more towards the end of the year is that they'll be best served by Putin being removed by power. So I think whether it's, um, whether it's you know, Palladium, palladium in his tea or a bullet in the back of his head um, or an accident down the stairs. I, I, I can't see him surviving beyond the end of this year. What do you think, mate? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very, very uh, thorough summary of, of your thinking about how we get there. I think it, to sum that up, it's kind of just as simple as saying uh, all the people in Russia who stand to benefit from Vladimir Putin's rule perhaps now us better served by him leaving power. Um, and I, I was reading uh, Michael Kaufman, the sort of very, very well noted uh, Russian military analyst on Twitter, and he and he said something very similar. He said, um, you know, <laughs> the idea that when wars go this badly, coups and leaders get removed from power because everyone realizes that there is a better alternative. Um, and I think that's exactly what you're saying. So no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I want to, I want to touch briefly on just so, so some of the things that stood out about this. I think I think it's important to kind of zoom out a bit and go, there is still a lot about what happened in that 24 hours with the march to Moscow and then the incredibly abrupt turning around um, of, of Wagner forces and, uh, you know, Lu- President Lukashenko of Belarus apparently being the one to broker the deal in Turkey. It's just, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't quite add up for me. And I, you know, I think we'll probably find out in coming days, weeks and months about what happened. But there's a few things that stood out for me. And one is we still haven't seen Sergei Shogu, the um the Russian defense minister, yeah. or, or uh, I think his name is Valery Geremasov, who is the the head of the Russian armed forces. These are the these are Prigozhin's the you know enemy number one and two. He hates them. He 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 wasn't necessarily trying to remove Putin from power. He was trying to remove those two guys from power and from before the attempted mutiny coup, whatever you want to call it, to now we haven't heard from them, we haven't seen them, they haven't said a word, Putin hasn't mentioned them. So their whereabouts uh, sort of stand out for me. Um, and and I, I don't understand how Putin can kind of be seen to fire his defense minister because a guy tried to have a coup to get... <laughs> To get rid of them, yeah. but I don't. I don't know what else he can do, right? Yeah, um, the, I mean that whole angle is fascinating. Like Putin was not only surpri- silent for a surprisingly long time while this mutiny was he underway, was, yeah. but he was silent for months beforehand when Prigozhin was getting increasingly provocative in his public criticisms, exactly. um, and and the criticisms were were at times unhinged, but at times. Um, you know, pretty spot on um, in in his criticism of the war, its rationale and its execution, which was strange to be nodding along to such a, in many ways, um, odious figure. Um, but 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 Putin Putin somehow remained silent for months on this, and I guess at first it it, it was like he was kind of this emperor figure. I mean, this I think was his initial thinking. He, he's the emperor of Russia. He's going to stay above this day to day squabble between his generals. Um, it, it's beneath him. I think it was also um, very smart. You know, talked about his feral genius for power. It was very smart that he stayed above the fray in the sense that it was quite useful um, for him to have some distance between him and, you know, his top military brass because um, it was quite useful to be able to blame them publicly at some point, um, at, you know, as a possible ex- you know, off-ramp for this whole disastrous invasion um, or, to, or to, you know, divert the, the public blame their way and hold them accountable. So it's good to have some space between him and his brass as well. Um, and then 
Um, I guess, though, ultimately, when Prigozhin announced he was basically marching on Moscow, you, you can't stay silent on something like it's that. just wild. Yeah. You, can, <laughs> no. you, you can't stay silent. And so he had to come out. Um, and it was pretty pretty stunning the way he came out. Um, it's worth folks watching the the address that Putin gave. Um, I mean, it was about, what, 24 hours after really this escalated. Putin finally made a public um, appearance on TV. Um, and it's... I mean, it's kind of stunning. Um, he himself made um, pretty sobering parallels with Russia's 1917 revolution. Um, he, he's visibly angry. Um, he, he uses words like um, betrayal and treason. He says they're driving the country towards anarchy and fratricide, um, you know, towards defeat and capitulation, betraying the names of everyone who died fighting in, in Bakhmut. Um, so um, he, he sort of, when he did come out, um, he came out, you know, 100% um, um, in a pretty shocking way against um, Prigozhin. Um, and it, it, I wondered if at that point that would be the moment when he, he backed down. But, you know, reports emerged that his initial response to that was that Putin made the wrong choice um, and, and that Russia would soon have a new president, which is That's just- That's what he said, yeah. Which is just stunning. Um, and so I guess having escalated that far- um, it's so hard to understand how um, you could then say, all right, I'll go to Belarus, but we're cool, right? Like, which is essentially what uh, what seems to have happened. Um, it's hard. It's so hard to believe that. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think that's a nice little pivot to like my next question to you and, and what we can sort of wrap up the, the emergency podcast here with, which is what is next? I mean, you've touched on it there. Uh, I think this is a status quo or an equilibrium that cannot hold for very long. You have a, a guy who's openly challenged, as you said, said we'll have a new president very soon. So that's there's no bones about that. That's that's a very clear uh, challenge. Um, he, we've got him out in Belarus ostensibly, you know, fine, kind of back in charge of Wagner and in the war. You've got Putin in the Kremlin. Uh, no word yet on the Russian armed forces um, leadership changes or not changes. So there's these... It's a very, 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 very unstable situation that, you know, has held together for 24 hours since um, the coup, mutiny, whatever you want to call it, ended, but I don't think can last for much longer. So what what do you think's next? And and I'll, I'll, I'll get you sort of quick answers here. What What's next, do you think, for the Russian state? Do you – is it going to break apart and pretty soon? Do you still stand by the fact that Putin's going to be cooked by the end of the year? Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I think Putin um, – there's no way he can survive this. Um, he, might si- he, he might survive it in a – literal sense he might still be alive but there's no way he can survive this politically um i mean he's just been publicly globally humiliated um you know he, his illusion of invincibility has just been shattered um is a one of the worst days in recent history for russia's air force i mean they lost multiple helicopters a really valuable electronic warfare system just brutal um and just the 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 poetic um flip that's been pulled on putin and russia is just it's it's you couldn't make this stuff up in a Hollywood screenwriter's room, right? Like a bit over a year ago, he was on the outskirts of Kiev, um, and next thing there's there's Russians on the outskirts of Moscow, and he's having to close bridges into his own capital. Um, the pace at which it happened is just such a stunning humiliation um, for Putin, and the fact that he had the fact that he had to do a deal and and supposedly a pretty humiliating deal, including you know potentially sacking his own defense minister, um, dropping charges against Prigozhin. Um, it's it's just yeah it's he's so weakened. I think the sharks are now going to be circling. Um, I think there's real 
real chance that things are going to um, go downhill very, very quickly, um, as they've done in Russian history previously. Um, you know, plenty of examples where there's been um, a, a transfer in power um, after a, a, a shocking um, performance by Russian military in a war overseas. What do you think, mate? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. If I was to play devil's advocate a little bit, I would say that we probably should wait a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks to see how he deals with Prigozhin. There is still, I think, a, a, a sort of a, a path that Putin can kind of decide, like, bide his time and then absolutely bring down the most brutal hammer possible and sort all of this out and reassert himself at the top of the pyramid, um, which is something he's done in the past, um, you know, really kind of emerge from the chaos as the undoubted king again, but I think you're right. I think this is a step too far and that he is going to really struggle. Um, before we jump off the pod, what does it do for the Ukraine war? Do you, I mean, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that um, most of the Russian forces that are defending against the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive are in the south of Ukraine, so they weren't necessarily affected by this directly. Um, so I don't know that there's any kind of immediate change on the battlefield for Ukraine, but my sense is, I mean, it's you can't have a coup in your own country and it not affect battlefield performance. But do you think this makes Ukraine's counteroffensive easier, harder? What's the take there? Yeah, um, I mean, I think you touched on it. Um, just now, I mean, it's a huge blow. I mean, Rus- the, the morale for Russian troops in Ukraine would have already been at rock bottom. To have this kind of shenanigans happening in your own country would just take it even further. But beyond morale, there's also this question of, well, hang on, what the hell is happening in Moscow? What's happening? There's a lot of uncertainty around our own country's leadership. So you, if you're uh, on the ground um, leading a brigade or a unit, um, you're going to be way less likely to take risks um, for yourself and for your troops in that situation. I think they're more likely to just tread tread water. Um, and, you know, Putin and his inner circle, I mean, they're going to be almost 100% focused right now on just holding on to their own power um, and, and responding to their own paranoia rather than having any kind of focus on winning the war in Ukraine. Um, and also, this really narrows the options for Putin to kind of rally the country and the, the economy around this war effort, Definitely. right? Um, whether it's trying to, you know, trying to um, uh, draft more, more folks into the, into the armed forces or, to, you know, um, co-opt more of the economy into backing the war effort. I mean, he's just lost so much credibility. It's hard to see him um, having the authority to, to rally anyone um, more than he already has in support of the war. So... Yeah, I think in, in a sort of um, big picture soft sense this is pretty disastrous for um, Russia's performance in Ukraine. Um, it'll be interesting to see the extent to which the Ukrainians are able to take advantage of it. I think that is a great place to to end our, our emergency pod here, JD. I think we could talk for probably another 45 minutes uh, about this. It was one of the more fascinating moments uh, or 24 hours really that I've, I can remember in geopolitics and kind of watching this stuff. It was, uh, it was a real, it, there's a real sense that history was unfolding right before your eyes on Twitter or wherever it was. Um, but, and we could talk about, you know, there's angles like China and Africa and all these other things that we haven't even touched on, but we'll leave it there. Um, thank you so much for your time. Sorry for the, sorry to the listeners for the, the lack of banter. It was a, it was a podcast that we kind of wanted to really kind of drill into to sort of see if we could tease out some of these, the, some of these angles. Um, hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we will be back to normal service uh, on Wednesday with the delightful Ethan. Uh, and uh, until then, thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, JD. Thanks, mate.
Thanks so much for tuning in. Not much to add on this one from me besides what I've already said on Intrigue Out Loud already, which is that wars cannot succeed and frankly can rarely persist without the consent of the governed that's in democracies and autocracies alike. So what I'll be watching for is how the Russian people react. Will they rally behind Putin as they have so many times? If so, he may stick around for a while. But if the Russian people abandon Putin, you better bet the Russian elites will too. But time will tell. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. We'll be back for our regularly scheduled programming on Wednesday. Wednesday.